Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome to this special episode of the Corrent Podcast. With the events currently taking place in the Ukraine, we wanted to take this opportunity to hear about what's happening on the ground there in Eastern Europe and to consider what we as Jews around the world can do in this challenging time. And to do that, we're joined by our friend Zach Jeffe from JRoots to tell us more. Zach, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, to start us off, tell us a bit about JRoots, what JRoots normally do and how things have changed over the past few weeks. Okay, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, JRoots is a Jewish educational charity. We uh, deal with Jewish heritage trips mainly to uh, Poland and Eastern Europe, but all over Europe and North Africa, working with a variety of schools, communities, uh, student organizations, bringing people to places of Jewish heritage to tell the story of Jewish life. And obviously, a significant part of that when you're traveling in Europe is also dealing with uh, the Holocaust as well. Um, so that's our that's our normal existence. Um, everything changed, I would say, two and a half two weeks ago um, with the with the invasion. I was actually there with a group from Manchester, a school group from Manchester, when the invasion started, um, and it came to I think Shabbat afternoon a discussion already the first sense of things changing fundamentally in Poland. A discussion with the security guard who said the Polish security guard who said that his. Uh, his wife had phoned him and said that she was going to be offering her home or his home, their home, um, to refugees arriving from from Ukraine, um, which sort of struck me instantly as a great act of a great act of chesed, but it was a theoretical act because um, the offer was there and we all make offers. Uh, two hours later, he gets another phone call to say that the family have already moved in, and by the time he finishes the trip. Uh, two days later, he'll be returning not just to his wife, but to also uh, a lady, her mother, and two children who have moved um, from Ukraine. And this really, um, I would say, like captivated the the group of students that I was with. That suddenly, at the drop of a hat, someone expressed like this outpouring of of chesed to total strangers um, to to help them with their plight. And then everything I would say snowballed quite quickly. Um, that Motzei Shabbat, we went for went for our dinner at the kosher restaurant and at the, the the end of the street there there's cars and vans and a, a building which is actually a church hall um, and there's people unloading well unloading people um, getting out of these cars but there's also piles and piles of clothes and donations the it become a donation center there in Krakow for people to help the refugees but it was also a a point where people who were arriving from the border were actually getting out of their cars and asking for assistance asking for food asking for help um and we went in and had a conversation with some of the people there and said what can we what can we do what do you need um and during that conversation we turned around to see or i turned around to see bunk beds at the back of this church hall but not just one but i think there were 10 or 12 bunk beds each with six or seven people in them uh, children it was 11 o'clock at night, staring out at all of us. Um, no one could get to sleep. The lights were on. And this very much, uh, it, it brought home that it was suddenly real. Um, and it was real people who were being impacted. And they were there on our doorstep. Um, and from that point onwards, the students, uh, they sort of had this outpouring of desire to do something, both when they went back to Manchester, but immediately they just opened their wallets and said, here's the, here's the money that we have in our wallets. What can be Please give it to these. Give it to these people. Give it to the people organising the project um, because there's a, a real need to help. So that was you. You were, you were in Poland, guiding a trip. Um, then you came home, very very briefly, and went back to Poland. Uh, and you were on the ground with some of your colleagues, um, helping. Can you like first of all, where were you, and what were you doing? What were you seeing? 
Okay, so between between that moment and returning to Poland, it was really an understanding of like how one can harness the power of social media. Um, literally a few messages, um, WhatsApps, Facebook posts, and the desire from the wider community, our community here in Israel and the JRoots community, people who've been on journeys with us all over the world, uh, a desire to, to donate money and say, how can we get this money into the hands of the people who need it? If it be people like Wojtek and his family who have got people living with them or the refugees arriving at this refugee centre. So then together with the director of J-Roots V. Sperber, we returned um, back to Poland with cases of donations that had come from here in Israel, with funds that had been transferred from all over the world, um, and went to see what how we could, um, I would say, pivot our logistical operations on the ground of hotels, of buses, of catering, all of the things that it takes to run a normal journey to Poland for Jewish teens or adults from around the world in order to help the, what by then was, they were talking about 1.2, 1.3 million Ukrainians who had um, crossed the border into into Poland. So once we got there with our partners and people that we already work with on the ground, the question was like, where where do we need to direct this help? And I would say because of the size of J Roots and we're uh, like a, a medium-sized Jewish charity, um, our ability to uh, be agile and find find the needs. So when the Jewish Community Centre in Krakow uh, said that their problem was finding hotel rooms and financing enough hotel rooms for the people who were walking in off the street, uh, we sit and talked to our hotel partners and said, okay, here, first of all, at the drop of a hat, we can take 15 rooms guaranteed for 30 days to make sure that there's somewhere to send people. That allocation has since upgraded to 60 rooms, taking over a wing of another hotel, so things like that to be able to offer people practical solutions to the problem, which is really housing and food at the sort of as they as they arrive there in Poland. And so, where when you were there the second time around, where where were you basing yourself? Were you were you close to the border, or you were sort of more inland and sort of? So we we landed there in Krakow, where we developed a couple of projects, the um, hotel projects and immediate aid, together with Chabad of Krakow, of people who were who were reaching out to them and helping with with catering for them, and then we headed towards the towards the border. Um, we started off in the border town city of Pshemish, uh, where we went to the train station there because everybody in, everybody on the ground understands that the train stations, the transport hubs are where people people gather. And there it was overwhelming in terms of not being able to move on the platforms inside the ticket hall. Um, there's a lot of people helping in various ways. There were people giving out food, but we turned up there with, with blankets and chocolate bars and basic things just to help people on their, on their onward journey. Um, and every time you go somewhere, you speak to people and you hear information about where, the, where they've come from, what, is their, what their needs are, and in a sense, understanding where you can um, direct your resources even better in terms of what else, what else is needed on the ground. One of the things I found already in the train station was a lot of Jews. A lot of people reach out, as in walking the, the train station full of refugees with a kippah on your head, uh, the amount of people who come and will say shalom, um, and we'll start a conversation either in broken Hebrew um, or in fluent Hebrew sometimes, wanting to get specific help that they as Jews need, whether it be um, help in finding the route to, to Israel. If it's And the route to Israel is challenging for people, both the, the, the practical side of how to get to the place where they can get to Israel, um, but 
sometimes it's much deeper than that, which is paperwork. A lot of people leave home with absolutely nothing um, and they don't have the papers that they need in order to prove their status in order to get here to, to Israel. So some of the families that we met along the way, we've been assisting them in finding people on the ground in Ukrainian towns and cities who can go to state archives or into offices in order to send us by WhatsApp copies of their documents that when they come to the Israeli embassy, wherever they might be, they have the potential to um, be able to make Aliyah and to, to start a new life here. Um, so that was the that, that was a train station. From then, we headed to the border itself. Um, the, one of the main border entrances into Poland from Ukraine is a place called Medica. Um, just a as we were driving, it like the, the road gets narrower and narrower into this very, very small town. Um, as we're driving along the, the road into Medica, we suddenly see this uh, semi-destroyed brick building, which for both myself and, and Svi um, is a, um, I'd say, stood out suddenly that, that, that there was something here that we veered the car to the, to, to the right and stopped. And there's... Most Polish towns have a destroyed or um, the shell of a, an empty building, which turned out was the synagogue of Medica, uh, which still has the ironwork in the window, still has the broken glass from the last time it was, it was used. We actually, on our way to the border, managed through the neighbor's house to climb in through uh, what was a bricked-up window of this old synagogue from the end of the 1800s in order to daven mincha there uh, beforehand. And this is a place which is most certainly not on the... Um, I would say, on the standard route of any journey to Poland. Um, and the idea of, like, when w- when a number of people stood there in order to daven mincha for the last time was probably uh, certainly a very, very long time ago. But that sort of framed our, um, I would say, framed our walk to the border from there. Um, and arriving at the border was really, like, very overwhelming. Um, there's police and, it's like, stewards absolutely everywhere. Um, and you can only get... However close, it's probably a five, ten minute walk from where you can where you can reach until you can get to the, the border area itself. Um, and what struck me is that there's a lot of kindness on the part of the, the Polish people, as in it is exceptional the way that the, the, the nation there in Poland has stepped forward in order to help people. The Polish police, the army, all of the people that we encountered um, showing immense kindness to the people who were who were arriving. Um, the thing that struck me at the border, I would say two things. Number one was the immense cold. It was probably minus two, minus three degrees. I was there with three coats on um, and was still sort of shivering. And once we started talking to people there, the understanding was that everybody had been waiting on the other side for probably minimum of 18 or 20 hours, um, if not if not more. And that was only the time at the border. That doesn't count the two, three, four days that they could have been on their journey since they um, since they arrived. And the other thing is, once we saw people walking through the border, it was a realisation of just how little they come with. Um, and this is something which I would say affected me deeply as a, an educator that deals with the Holocaust all the time, is one of the things that we often discuss with our students and participants is what what things do people take when they leave home? What is important to people? Um, and how does one pack a bag? Um, and one of the things that I've never really realized is like the size of the bag is so important that I would always have thought that obviously you would take the largest suitcase that you possibly can. Now, first of all, many of the people don't even have suitcases. So they're dealing with shopping bags and uh, trash bags, which are filled with uh, with 
with, with their possessions. But also, even if you're lucky enough to have a large suitcase, you probably can't pull a large suitcase and hold your child's hand and push a stroller at the same time. So there are lots of, I, I would say, very difficult decisions that people make in terms of what they bring with. Um, and I saw people, and I don't think necessarily people who were fundamentally poor beforehand, crossing the border with very, very little, with a carry-on that most of us would take um, for a... For, for, an, for an overnight, and that's what they're and that's what they're coming with. The other thing that I, like stood out was a, a girl travelling with her um, with her guitar on her back. Again, she'd prioritised her musical instrument over probably many other things: a towel, uh, items of clothes, or food that that, that she could have taken with. Um, and that was a like a I would say like a deep realisation that connects very much to what we do on a on a weekly basis, educating in J Roots. You just, I mean, you mentioned people you met both at the station and the border can you tell us about some of the conversations and you mentioned different languages flying around um can you tell us about any of the conversations you have with people there so some of the conversations are very basic using google translate on phones me talking english and translating to ukrainian and vice versa uh for them but there were also a lot of english and in hebrew speakers uh there was a couple i met a mother and her daughter who had left from a place called vinitsa in Ukraine and were on their way and I asked them specifically about the size of their bag and they said that the moment the the shell hits the building next door that's when they that's when they upped and left uh, so I don't think there were, for instance there was much uh, much planning let's say in terms of uh, in terms of what they were taking um some of the conversations that we had was also with the aid workers and the um, the journalists and the photographers who were covering it so Firstly, in terms of the media that were there, there were people who had a lot of experience with war zones and crises and natural disasters from all over the world. Every one of them that I spoke to was totally overwhelmed and shocked by the size and scale of this and said it doesn't compare to anything that they had seen. No one has encountered such a mass civilian um, exodus and, and until they were until they were standing here, and the numbers, even that there's just this one border crossing that we were standing at, was tens of thousands each day. Said one of the um, one of the soldiers who was guarding the who was guarding the border. In terms of the aid workers and the volunteers that were there, there were some who were part of big organisations, Hatzala Logvulot, the Rescues Without Borders. There was Magen David Adom. There was a, a significant Israeli presence. There was. Uh, guy there working on behalf of the um, Jewish agency with an Israeli flag at the at the border in order to attract attention to those people who wanted guidance in order to in order to make Aliyah. But there were also individuals from all over the world who had just got up and left their homes. I met a guy from Manchester who left his house in the in the middle of the night. He said after a um, a, a discussion with his wife about whether he should go, he's, he decided that this was his uh, this was his calling. He got on the plane and left. Um, and he was walking around chopping wood and stoking fires um, in these barrels that stand around the area of the border in order to keep people warm. So you see a whole variety of people who come from all over the world um, noticing the need of what needs to be done. Um, and again, from our educational point of view, it very much connects to something one of the survivors who we used to deal with, she passed away um, survivor called Pearl Banish. She was actually one of Sarah Schneer's students. She was part of the original intake of the Beis Yaakov in Krakow. Um, she herself, a survivor of Plashov of Auschwitz. And one of the things that she once said was, it's amazing how many mitzvot you could perform in Auschwitz. By which what she meant was, there was so many, in the place where there was so much destruction, there was al also so many opportunities to do chesed and to do kindness and to do the right thing and to treat people properly. And I definitely saw that while we were, while we were there in Poland on the border. 
in a way, you, J Roots and, and you and Sphere seem to be fairly fortunate that you have this network, this logistics network, sort of more or less at your disposal to um, find people hotel rooms, to get in touch with caterers, with restaurants, say, like, we need to get food here and there. Um, and also, it seems as if to, to have raised a, a fair sum of money to, to distribute to the right people. Um, and that's something that some of the, the bigger organizations, even the sort of international uh, governmental organizations, whether it's you know part of the UN or whoever else, um, may have been struggling to do just because of bureaucracy. Um, and like when Ari said at the beginning, you know, we're talking to our friend Zach, like Zach is actually a friend of mine and Ari is, um, you know, we know each other socially. Zach and I used to work together um, back in the UK uh, where we worked we did a lot of work with uh, one of the orphanages in Odessa. Um, do do you see do you see that you sort of been band aiding problems until somebody else can come in and, and fix them, um, or has there been? I mean, is it even possible to be to be fixing this situation? I mean, from what you've seen, you know, what we're seeing on the news is. We're seeing you know, reports of the, the invasion itself and the, the bombings themselves uh, in the Ukraine. Um, sorry, bombings themselves in Ukraine. Um, and I think you you said before when you were there, the number was standing at something like 1.2, 1.3 million people. That number's doubled in the last week or so. It's now somewhere around 2.5, 2.6 million refugees coming out of Ukraine. From what you've seen, is is there an end to this? You know, I think Arya mentioned to me, sort of off off mic, that like the situation can change at the drop of a hat, and short of just Russia going home, is there a solution? I mean, you know, what do you feel there is a a, a long term solution to to what's happening, or are we just for as long as we can trying to, you know, talk to the hotel? Say like you've got sixty rooms being occupied at the moment. Just keep them occupied, or is there a a, uh, a more permanent solution underworked? So I think that the scale of what's going on is unprecedented in probably the last seventy, maybe even a hundred years. Um, so it's going to take governments and governmental organisations time to work out what the long time, what what the long term uh, plan is here. Um, speaking to one of my friends in in america he said that the best parallel to what's going on here or in terms of population shift is probably the end of the first world war by which by the end of the first world war you had jewish populations of different nationalities in all sorts of places so when you find a big significant polish jewish community in germany uh, on the eve of the second world war that's because of displacement that happened during the first world war um, and i think that will very much change the face of europe it will change the face of jewish communities as well take for instance krakow which doesn't have a massive Jewish community at the, at the moment. It's having this giant influx of Ukrainians generally and also Ukrainian Jews. How many of them will stay there is a, is a question. But I think that as Jewish communities in Europe in particular and probably in Israel as well, we will be answering these questions of how the Ukrainian immigration is going to, is going to change the nature of, of our communities. Now, if you ask people on the border, are you, are you leaving for good or are you going home? I think that most of them will say that their desire is to go home. Um, but there's always a a gap between belief and real internalization, and I think that it's probably not the time now for someone to really internalize the fact that the possibility is that 
there will be no home to go back to. Um, one of the things is that the people who are leaving at the moment are women and children, which means that their husbands and their fathers, most of them have stayed behind in Ukraine to fight, also because they're not allowed to leave. Um, that connection of having a family member there is also something that means that people are not willing conceptually to, to give up on the idea of going back. That also creates a barrier of the next stage, because in order to apply for refugee status anywhere in the world, you have to give up your passport, which emotionally for somebody who's just left their home is an incredibly scary thing to do. The, your passport, even if it's a Ukrainian passport, which you don't feel is worth much, is essentially the most valuable item you own. It's your, it's your identity, it's your ability to move somewhere. And to turn to a country and say, I'd like to be a refugee, I want all of the help that comes with that, you have to give up that document. Um, and, and I think that while people have got uh, fathers and brothers and husbands in, back in Ukraine, that's going to be a barrier to people sort of finding a settled, um, a settled status. Um, back to your first point, which was about like the size of like very large organizations, as in we, JROOTS, are well-placed because we are, I would say, small enough and agile enough to, to, to find specific needs. And the reason that people are asking us to take their charitable donations uh, is not because we're the only charity dealing with this. Thank God there are many like wonderful charities who are doing absolutely excellent work, um, but because of the reputation that we've developed, people have a sense that if they are giving money to JROOTS, it's going to be delivered directly into the hands of people. And that's, that was very much our experience when we were there, was be able to find people who needed money um, and who needed stuff. So, for instance, on Friday we delivered... Um, a suitcase full of clothes to a woman and her daughter who had travelled with nothing. The absolute basics. Every item of clothes they would need, some new shoes and, and, and shampoo. And the, the the personal edge of that, I think, is very important. And you can't separate between the the, the vastness of the refugee crisis and the big numbers um, and, the, and the individual stories. And I think that is where, when it comes to delivering humanitarian aid, you need people who are on the ground. As in... A, a giant organization cannot help um, a particular lady and her daughter. They need a representative on the ground who's going to do that. And I think that we're sort of fulfilling fulfilling that function. Uh, taking you back to what you said about Odessa and, uh, and Tikva, where we used to together um, back in our old old life back in England, um, visit the, the Tikva orphanage there in Odessa. So actually I was in one of the refugee centers, which is a converted superstore. Um, Tesco has left Poland. About a year ago, leaving behind it many empty like warehouses, one of those in a place called uh, um, Przemysl has been converted into a, a refugee centre. Numbers are difficult to estimate. When I went in, I would probably guess around 5,000 people who were there. It's, I would say, like a holding station before people take buses or um, to, to elsewhere in Europe. And it was there that a 14-year-old girl started talking to me in Hebrew. Um, she starts explaining where they're from that she's from odessa and i said odessa where like whereabouts in odessa she said that i was um we were at school in tikva um because tikva is not just a children's home and an orphanage it also caters for the for the wider jewish community and uh, she calls over her her parents miraculously her the family were all together the father's there together with the two sisters um and we work out that this 14 year old girl um, 10 years ago was was three years old um, at the same time that I was visiting Tikva on a sort of twice yearly basis with groups of volunteers from the UK when I pulled out my phone and sort of 
Google photo searched my photos from Odessa, she could identify the people in my pictures, the Kabbalat Shabbat video that I had from the from the nursery there. Um, so it's like a, a very strange reunion of sorts um, in the most most surreal of places. Um, and they they're now on their way. They're, they've travelled to Paris. We've been helping them to try and find their documentation. Their intention is ultimately to to come to Israel. But that type of individual connection, which I think also is the Jewish community we have, when you meet a we always talk about mishpachology, like meeting Jews elsewhere in the world. You'll try and find your connection. So those connections, even with these people who, on paper, many Western European Jews or American Jews or Israeli Jews would say, I really don't have any kesher. I don't have any real connection with the, the, the Jews who are still living in Ukraine. I can't even understand why Jews would still be living in Ukraine, I think lots of people are saying. Um, it doesn't take long before you really like realize how close those connections are. Um, you reflect on this a little bit in a few of the things we've talked about, but can you tell us a bit more about how, um, I guess, your work before this situation erupted, J-Roots, you know, the the, the J-Roots message or what you are, the messages you're teaching on journeys to Poland, how has that informed your work, both, I guess, personally and also J-Roots work um, over the past few weeks? Like, what what have you learned or what? What should we be learning from our own Jewish history and bringing to this situation? So I think that J-Roots exists in order to learn Jewish history and to learn where we are in Jewish history, where we fit into the picture. And I think that lessons have to be applicable. Um, when it comes to Holocaust education, there's a very fine line between um, learning the history of the Holocaust and applying it to uh, to nowadays, as in we all know from any website on the internet that everyone likes to compare everything to the Holocaust, and most of the time it's an invalid comparison. And because the Holocaust was um, unprecedented and had its own unique unique nature, that being said, if we study the Holocaust and it doesn't lead us to become more sensitive to something and to be able to identify the need to act wherever it may may occur, then again, we might as well be learning like a theoretical a theoretical physics which can never be applied. As in, we at JRoots believe that you have to learn applied history um, and there have to be lessons there. So the people that we meet um, along the way and the, like the stories that we tell, either of victims or of survivors, uh, they have to have something for us in the, in the long run. And I don't think it's a... It's not a coincidence that we as J-Roots have sort of pivoted to say this Jewish heritage educational organization has pivoted towards um, helping Ukrainian refugees. It's not like we were a charity that was dealing with, I don't know, a dog shelter which all of a sudden decides it has a different like a different value which it needs to which it needs to fulfill. Um, this is very much a reflection of our of our values. Um, I would say an, an example would be that there was a, a lady who we used to often meet on our journeys to Poland. She lived in Krakow. She was a Polish Catholic lady called Polina Kishilewska. Um, and on a Shabbat afternoon, she would often come to visit our groups. Um, she, Although many of our students and participants either are from families with survivors or have met survivors, had conversations with survivors, um, the concept of the righteous among the nations, that's non-Jews who saved Jews during the Holocaust, not for personal benefit and at risk most of the time to their own lives, those people often appear in, in storybooks um, or the, the people who plant trees at the avenue in, in Yad Vashem. They're not necessarily real people, but there are, they do exist and they live 
some of them still, and Paulina was one of those. And she she would come and speak to our groups every uh, every time we were there and tell her story of how she as a 10, 11 year old girl saw a Polish Catholic lady being shot for handing a piece of bread to a to a Jewish girl. Paulina then returns home to her father and says, "I've seen this terrible, terrible thing. Like, what can we do?" And all her father can say to her is that there's a war going on and when war happens then terrible things happen and there's nothing really that we can do a couple of days later Paulina gets a knock at the door and there's a 10 year old Jewish boy standing there asking for some bread or something to eat and logic dictates that she should have just have closed the door instead she goes to her father and says father there's someone waiting at the door what should we do and unhesitatingly her father turns around and says invite him in we're going to feed him this is a family who knows and has seen firsthand what the price of helping others can be and they sent the boy on his way and they said if you're hungry the next day then come back and he comes back the next day with two children so three of them then get fed and for weeks and weeks and weeks they end up feeding and helping uh, Jewish children who are sheltering from the the Nazis and get involved in over the course of the war an entire rescue effort to help these children and find somewhere for them to to stay and to be safe and by the end of the war there are seven or eight Jews alive because of Paulina and, uh, and what her family did and what struck me always was that she would be asked the question of why did you do it? Um, and she would answer in Polish, but you didn't really need a translator because she would, her, her face would say it was obvious. It was, there was no question within her family and the way that she'd been brought up that when there was an opportunity to save someone that, that you would. Now, this is just one story of someone who I would say expresses the ability of humans to rise above their station and to uh, really fill fill the void wherever it may be. Um, and But for us personally, as a family, she's a very important role model. My daughter, who was born a few months after she passed away, is named after her. So she's the Halel Neshama Paulina, probably one of the only uh, Jewish children in a nursery here in Israel carrying a Polish Catholic name. Um, but the desire is that one day we won't be able to meet these people in person. Our children, our grandchildren certainly won't. But the idea that there should be a, a, an educational message that these people did exist, that when crisis hits, there are people who are able to, to step up. And just as you see the depths to which humanity can can fall at the very same time, but in the same place, you can see people who sort of um, put their humanity on like uh, on super speed. And really uh, maximize what they what they can possibly do. So I think that that, for instance, is where we as J Roots see that Holocaust education has to have a practical application to say, like, okay, if there's if the if there is a need to be fulfilled in terms of helping people, again, unquestionably, the the help that we are giving is certainly to Jews who are escaping Ukraine and many of those like find us but also to non-Jews whoever as I said to someone when you're standing at the border and someone walks across with their with their children and they're freezing cold the first question that you ask is not what is your religion the first question you ask is what can I do for you on that note those of us who can't go and stand at the border who can't go and just hand out blankets chocolate bars whatever it is what can we what can our listeners do practically to assist those who need it what I what from what you've seen and from what J Roots are doing, what is most needed right now? At the moment, we are still working with our organisations there on the ground to provide supplies, the basics, uh, hotel rooms and food. And also we've opened up quite a few channels of transport of aid into Ukraine itself, uh, be it to the Jewish community in Lviv uh, or communities in, in that area. And 
things that they need are things that some, we sometimes don't think about. That might be electricity generators, because during the during the war, the chances of the electricity going off are incredibly high, and heating is often connected to the electricity. Communication is also connected to electricity. So we are collecting funds in order to to buy these items. Some of them are difficult to find. Importing medical aid from from Germany and from further further afield in Europe. So. I think contributing financially is something that people can certainly do, either to our campaign or many of the other very worthwhile campaigns that are happening uh, around the world. I think that one of the things that's going to be relevant over the coming months is this question of housing refugees, in particular, I would say Jewish refugees within the Jewish community. Um, I know that already the UK has started to talk about people opening their homes um, and getting government support in order to take in refugees. And I think this will be the time when the Jewish community has to step up and say, how do we open our homes and our communities to people who are not like us and do not speak the same language as us? Um, When it comes to these offers, I think that when people... The, the, the basics often sometimes people have a home that they don't use or an apartment that they don't use and I've seen already in Poland and further afield people opening these properties and saying these properties are available for three for four months without rent to people who are in need and also the idea of opening your your home now it's not an easy thing to do and I think that once you think about the possibility of getting a family who are not necessarily a simple family or who have challenges or who need various support and you can obviously imagine that any child who's coming out of a a crisis is going to need extra support but I think that the Jewish community is going to need to step forward and say how are we supporting the refugees and how are we supporting the families who are supporting the refugees so even if you're not a family who can open your home and have someone coming and live with you when it comes probably the next few weeks next few months when there are Ukrainian Jews living in your Jewish community what is our relationship going to be with them so on that, um, just to say thank you, Zach, again for joining us. Um, if our listeners want to find out more about the work that you're doing, that Jerry's is doing, how can they do that? Okay, we're sharing a lot of the work that we're doing on Facebook in order to connect to the wider community and get them to, to buy and understand what the needs are there on the ground. Uh, we have a number of WhatsApp groups following the the journey of the Ukraine campaign with updates throughout the day of individual families, individual stories of that we are affecting along the way. Uh, and also along the, on the website, the JOH website, people who do want to donate and support the work we're doing are welcome to visit there as well, which is at www.jroots.org forward slash donate. We'll put a link to that uh, in the show notes, obviously, uh, and to your social media and perhaps a few other places that people might be able uh, to offer assistance um, and on that note um, I think just on behalf of myself and Ari and everyone listening we want to say thank you to you Zach thank for, you for having me. Uh, spending this time with us um, it's always been a, a pleasure being your friend but it's um, uh, truly inspiring to to see what you're doing with Svi uh, and with Jerry as well um, hopefully your work will become redundant uh, very very shortly for, in a positive way Um we should share only good news in the future. Thank you. Before closing out the episode, I want to thank Zach again for giving us his time. He and Sweet Sperber and everyone at J Roots are truly inspirational and the work they're doing is making a massive difference on the ground um, for those fleeing the conflict in Ukraine. I'd like to repeat, if you want to donate, you can visit jroots.org slash donate or to any of the other amazing organisations who have mobilised in such a short period of time 
to provide assistance to those fleeing the conflict who have left so much behind and have no amount of certainty for the future. And so all that's left to say is thank you for listening.